0: I asked them to do that last song. It was awesome. Thank you guys for doing that. Well, this message in a way will be a continuation of where Greg left off last week. Uh, I was amazed as I was listening to him last week how it was such a segue into today. And um, much of what I want to share... We've talked about a lot in pieces, but I hope to kind of bring it all together in one gelled understanding. Uh, and it is, it is, in a way, a prophetic message. This is a foretelling of what is coming. And I, I often think it's so interesting how the Lord works in different ways in different people. I actually really get a kick out of it. I love to hear about process but I watch some people and I think Greg would be one of these people, but where they will deliver a message. And I would call it the Moses way where the Lord says, go and speak, you know, and, and Moses is like, what? What do I say, Lord? What? You know, and the Lord doesn't answer those questions. He just says, go and I am with you. And my experience with the Lord is entirely different. It's like complete opposite. I would call it more of the Ezekiel way where in Ezekiel chapter 3, the Lord calls Ezekiel to be a prophet, and he says, "He says, I'm calling you to speak, but what I want is for my words to sink deep within you first. Listen to my words carefully for yourself, and then go to your people in exile and say these things. And so my experience is that I, I receive and I hold these concepts from the Lord, sometimes for a long time until he tells me what to do with them, but this message has been a solid two years in coming for me, and I've been eating and sleeping and breathing this. So I'd like to start, if you will turn with me, to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, we're gonna read verses 1 and 2. Uh, just so you know, I'm gonna be using an LT version and also Amplified, cause those are my two favorites. Uh, this is in NLT, I do believe. So, Isaiah 61, 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. So the time of the Lord's favor has come. In Jewish culture, the time of the Lord's favor was considered the year of jubilee. So it was the every 50th year that signified great celebration where slaves were released and all debt was canceled and the land rested from work, which means the people did also and All of the land parcels were returned back to their original family owners. And it was just a great a great time of rest and freedom and joy, and everyone looked forward to it because in someone's lifetime, they may only have one year of Jubilee, or if they happen to be young, they might be able to experience two of them. But the interesting thing about what I want to bring out today is that during the year of Jubilee... If a, if a piece of land had changed hands several times, meaning it was bought and sold and bought and sold all over the course of 50 years, the Jubilee year didn't just void one transaction back. It voided every transaction all the way back to the beginning, and that piece of land was returned back to the original family, as if none of those transactions had ever happened. Okay? The Jubilee, though ultimately was a representation of jesus and what jesus would accomplish on the cross to release the world from slavery to release the world from the debt of sin to bring the great joy of redemption and to bring the true rest of god and and signified the land of the earth being returned to its original owners okay so the time of the lord's favor was like this year-long prophetic metaphor For the time of the earth being returned into the hands of the true people of God. Right? Because Jesus bought back the rights on the cross with his blood. But the people of God have not received the earth back, not in a physical guardianship way of the earth yet. Right? So this is the time period we're entering now. So the time of the Lord's favor in Isaiah 61 refers to this time. ...when the Father would make plain and clear on earth the redemption that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Okay? And we've spoken a lot around here about the reversing of the curse. And that is because last year the Lord led us to declare the undoing of the curse of sin in the court of nations. And that's the spiritual court the Lord has opened up to us at certain times of his choosing... And when the Lord began to speak to me about the end of the curse of sin, he told me not to use the words reversing the curse. He told me to use the word revoke. So I looked up the word revoke because I wanted to make sure I understood what he was saying. And revoke is a really good legal word that means to annul by recalling or taking back to put an end to the validity of operation by a decree. To say officially that an agreement or law is no longer in effect, to officially cancel. And what we have learned is that there's always a legal precedent put in place in the spirit before we begin to see change in the natural realm, right? This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 16:19, he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind— declare to be improper and unlawful on earth must be what is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, declare lawful on earth must be what is already loosed in heaven. Okay, I've heard teaching on this verse where people seem to understand it to say we take authority because the authority of the believers is a thing. And we decide what should be bound and loosed. And heaven kind of accepts that, you know, like a. like a bottom-up strategy or an earth-to-heaven strategy, but that's not uh, that's not how spiritual authority works. Like, yes, the Father does give authority to the believer, but it's His authority through us. He causes His will to be declared from heaven to earth, not the other way around. Okay, and that's what that's what Jesus is saying here. Whatever you declare lawful on earth must be. What is already bound in heaven. I, I think that verse is misinterpreted a lot, too, because because they interpret it to say it in other versions of the Bible. The wording is different. That's why I like the amplified version, because it gets the verb tenses right on, on the truth of, of how it works. OK, so the curse of sin has been revoked. And that happened on August 5th of 2021, which means there is no effect of the curse of sin that cannot be undone on the earth. Jesus purchased back. I feel like I'm yelling now that he turned, <laughs> now that, he turned that off, that heater off. Jesus purchased back for the rights of man to live in the wholeness and authority again that Adam and Eve gave away. To say that Jesus' life and death only offered atonement for sin and eternal life with him, which is what I was taught all my life, which is what still to this day most Christians believe, is to grossly underestimate and miss the huge implications of what his blood accomplished. Like for us, it's amazing if that's all he did. If, if he redeemed us and we get to be with him forever, that's amazing. But that view of only believing those are the things that Jesus blood accomplished. It it would assume that there are many things about the curse of sin that are just still too powerful to be overcome. Like physical death is always final and decay is always inevitable. And men are always going to rule over women. So there will never be, you know, proper equality the way the Lord designed it. And pain in childbirth is always going to be a thing. And. It's we're always going to have to work hard for low reward. Like if we believe those things are not changeable on earth, then we really don't think very highly of the blood of Jesus. So this is something we all know, but when sin entered the world, a massive wall of separation and disconnection entered that disconnected us from the father. And we weren't designed to live in the disconnection that followed. One night a couple years ago, I was asleep, and things happened in my sleep. I I woke up in the middle of the night to the Lord giving me this resounding sentence, and it was loud, and it was this, true suffering is lack of the Lord with no way to gain him. And I had to think about that for quite some time, true suffering is lack of the Lord With no way to gain him. We think of all the aspects of human suffering, and some are so awful and so severe, but the truest, deepest form of suffering is separation from the Father. And though, yes, we are able to know him through the blood of Jesus and by the power of his Spirit, in many ways we've still been separated from him because we haven't yet experienced the fullness that was lost at the curse of sin our experience has been still limited in some ways so separation from god is true exile which is true suffering there is no deeper form of suffering and this is where even the deepest form of grief comes from whether people most people consciously don't understand this but it's it's the deepest reason for grief okay The definition of exile is when a person is living in forced absence from one's country or home. It's it's to be banished from one's home. And all this time, man has lived in a type of exile that we don't recognize. And we don't recognize it because we've not yet known the full measure in experience on earth of what our connection to the Father was supposed to be. But that's about to change. See, we were created to be his home, his dwelling place on earth. The connection of the natural realm and the spirit realm before sin was seamless. Man fully able to live in both at the same time. As the habitation of God. And this goes beyond what we have experienced so far with Yes, of course we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit And we're sealed by him and he is always with us But I'm speaking of an existence that Adam and Eve had With the father before sin We have not yet experienced that So the curse has been revoked And restoration of all that is beginning I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans 8 if you could And I know, Romans 8 again seems like it's always Romans 8 lately. And we're going to start reading in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For the spirit which you have now received is not a spirit of slavery to put you once more in bondage to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, the spirit-producing sonship. In the bliss of which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself thus testifies together with our own Spirit, assuring us that we are children of God. And if we are His children, then we are His heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, sharing His inheritance with Him. Only we must share in His suffering if we are to share in His glory. It's easy for us to kind of read that and gloss over what it's saying here. Like, we easily accept the idea that we are joint heirs with Jesus when it comes to thinking about salvation, right? But do we really believe that God has given us the same inheritance as he has given Jesus? Like, it's, it's one thing to know that in your head. It's a whole other thing to get the revelation in your heart of the position of an heir, Years ago, this was a hard concept for me to grasp. At first, I, I just felt like it was offensive to have the audacity for us to think, think of ourselves as a brother or sister in relation to Jesus. Like It just felt blasphemous in a way. Until, until my paradigm had to change and I had to align with what the Lord has offered us. In paradigm, and there were several passages of scripture I wrestled with. One was later on in Romans 8, where it addresses this, and there's another in Hebrews 10, um, Hebrews 2:10, and I'll just read that, where it says, "God, for whom and through everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, and it was only right that He should make Jesus through His suffering a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation." So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Well, we have a responsibility to believe the word of God, right? So if Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, then we work against him to not believe that that is our position. And maybe none of you have ever struggled with this. I'm just telling you my early struggle, and I'm going somewhere with this. So we need to view ourselves then walking alongside Jesus as equal heirs, the equal heirs he says we are. Now understand, I'm not talking about identity. Okay, forever Jesus is the king of kings and we are just only humans. I'm talking about position, the position that his sacrifice offers us. Okay, we begin to grasp our position As brothers and sisters, simply because the father decided to bring many children into glory. And when you get that revelation, it's just breathtaking. It's life changing. So then if that's the case, what is what is our full inheritance? What does that even mean? So let's keep reading in Romans eight and um, we'll, we'll go down to verse 19. For even the whole creation, all nature, waits expectantly and longs earnestly for God's sons to be made known, waits for the revealing, the disclosing of their sonship. For the creation, nature, was subjected to frailty, to futility, condemned to frustration, not because of some intentional fault on its part, but by the will of him who so subjected it, yet with the hope that nature creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and corruption and gain an entrance into the glorious freedom of God's children. We know that the whole creation of irrational creatures has been moaning together in the pains of labor until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves too, who have and enjoy the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, a foretaste of the blissful things to come grown inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies from sensuality and the grave, which will reveal our adoption, our manifestation of as God's sons. So first I want to concentrate on verse 23. We who have and enjoy the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, a foretaste of the blissful things to come. The first fruits in Jewish culture were the first agricultural produce of a season. They were the portion that the people offered to God in in faith that the rest of the harvest that they still needed to harvest and they still needed to live on would come. And that bulk of the crop was still coming. So he uses the word first fruits here as a symbol of the foretaste he was experiencing of the Holy Spirit. The definition of the word foretaste is like a a preview of something, okay? A suggestion of something that lies ahead. A partial experience of something forthcoming. So what Paul is saying here is that he knew he was walking in the first fruits. A foretaste, a preview measure of the Holy Spirit. And think about it, like this is Paul we're talking about. Paul who healed people everywhere he went who healed all of the people on the island of Malta, who had powerful revelation. He wrote much of the New Testament. He knew he only lived in a preview measure of the Holy Spirit, and he was looking for something much bigger. So notice here in Romans 8, there are three things tied together, three things linked together. Creation will be set free from bondage. An increased measure of the Holy Spirit. And the third one is the redemption of our bodies. Okay? These are linked together in this passage as what will happen all at the same time. This future day when it's time for the revealing of the children of God. And notice something he doesn't say here. Okay? This is a big deal. He does not say anything here about dying first. I'm amazed at how Christianity, and it's it's really because of unbelief, has assumed and taught for years and years that all these things won't happen until after we die. If this is for after we die, why would creation be looking forward to the revealing of the children of God on the earth? Like, it would be unnecessary at that point, right? Clearly, if we're dead from this life and in heaven, it would be obvious we were his children, and the earth wouldn't see the revealing of the sons of God. When everything is pushed good, everything good in the Bible is pushed into the afterlife— That's where we get this escapism mentality, you know, where people are like, oh, we just got to we just got to hang on till we get to heaven where it will finally be better. And this idea is so toxic because first it makes it absolves people of responsibility here on the earth. But maybe even worse than that, it causes them to think favorably about death. Like death, the biggest enemy of the Lord. And it's one of the enormous reasons Jesus came to earth was to destroy death. So to welcome death is to welcome the thing that Jesus came to destroy. I don't know how things got so backwards. But the first one being creation. We've said this before. We've talked about it before. But creation is being set free from bondage to decay. And we will see increased natural phenomenon on the earth because of that. I can only imagine the process of decay that. Began in perfection and went to decay after the curse of sin was rough and I can only imagine The flood the great flood being extremely violent and rough I mean we just watched a video the other night of what a storm surge From the hurricane a 10-foot storm surge can do in one day From one hurricane and you're talking about the water covered the highest mountain peak for months Like how rough was that? So I can only assume that the return of the earth to what it was supposed to be could be rough. The Lord told me that the earth would return to its original design state. I do not know what all that means. He only made a couple statements to us about this. He told us that the earth will be healed in ways we didn't know it was sick. And then he told us that originally every season... Like, we experience the four seasons here. Not everyone on the earth experiences them quite like we do here. But he said that every season originally produced something good. And no season produced death as part of its creation. So Paul knew that this time would come. He knew what Jesus gave his life to accomplish. But for years and years, no one saw what Paul described here. So they just stopped looking for it, or they assumed Paul must have meant something else. And all people could see was death. All people could see was decay and entropy. So they stopped believing and looking forward to it. And then after that, more scholars came along, and scientists like Isaac Newton came along. And he brought forth these laws of thermodynamics, right? And they're all about heat transfer and entropy. And the Lord said to me that these laws of thermodynamics came into being at the curse of sin. They were never his original plan. They were his concession for a time. Like you understand, all Isaac Newton did was was experiment and observe the condition of heat and energy transfer and just declared its condition. Like, this is the condition. Heat dissipates, which leads to entropy, which always increases. He wasn't wrong. He was just saying the same thing, in essence, that Paul was saying 1,600 years earlier when he was saying all creation is groaning under the weight of sin. It's just that how scientists said it made it science, and how Paul said it made it led by the Holy Spirit. But it's the same thing. You understand God created science. Right. Like it's not God fits into science somehow. Like God can upend and override man's definition of science whenever he wants to. And I think we're about to see that. And my point is that the paradigm of, of our of creation being under decay and corruption became one of the things that mankind and even Christianity just believes is impossible to change. And that became what is taught, even though nothing in this chapter is talking about us leaving the earth or dying. All right, let's move on. Creation, and second thing is an increased measure of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we already said Paul knew he was experiencing a foretaste of future glory. Okay, let's remember, Paul. Was His mission was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and help the growing churches understand what was going on in their midst. Unusual things were happening, and the Holy Spirit was opening up gifts. And his calling was to help teach, help explain, help people know how to handle them properly. But now we're coming into the time of future glory where what has been will continue, but there is more. So what has been since Pentecost is this foretaste, this first fruits of a much larger crop, metaphorically, okay? And this isn't even the only passage where Paul speaks about this. There are others. I want to look at one more in Ephesians 1. If you're able to turn with me, it's Ephesians 1. We'll start in verse 13. But remember, this is after Paul just spoke about the passage we've looked at many times, where in verse 9 he talks about the mystery of his plan to unify all things in Christ, both in heaven and on earth. So verse 13, Ephesians 1, In him you also, who have heard the word of truth, the glad tidings of your salvation, and have believed in and adhered to and relied on him, were stamped with the seal of the long-promised spirit. That spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, the firstfruits, the pledge and foretaste, the down payment on our heritage in anticipation of its full redemption and our acquiring complete possession of it to the praise of his glory. He's saying here, the Holy Spirit measure that we have had since Pentecost has been a down payment Okay. think of it like a mortgage when you buy a house, you put a down payment down, you sign the papers, you have legal documents that where you are saying I'm going to pay the rest of this money for this house. Right. The Holy Spirit measure that we have had has been a down payment that guarantees our full inheritance. Okay. so what I'm getting at here is that there's more now coming and available to us than even Paul had. See, it isn't Paul who is our example to follow when it comes to spiritual gifts. It's Jesus. The foretaste of the Holy Spirit is what Paul had and what we have right now. The full inheritance, what Paul described as the future glory, is what Jesus had. And I've heard people teach these things and... and Take the spiritual gifts that Paul speaks about and taking the gift classifications and applying them to the life of Jesus. So they'll say things like, like, oh, when Jesus fed the 5,000, that was Jesus operating in the gift of the working of miracles. Or they'll say, when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well and told her she had five husbands, that was Jesus working in the gift of a word of knowledge. But that's a backwards approach. See, Jesus was first. His life sets the ultimate standard. What followed after Jesus in the Bible and even everything that Paul did and taught, it was glorious. But it was still inferior to what Jesus made possible with his life on earth. And this is what we've read here. Paul is literally saying this. If he were here today, he'd be saying the same thing. Once the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, yes, every believer is sealed by him and he is always working his sanctification process. But what has been until now is the Holy Spirit coming and moving within the believer and in other ways through his spiritual gifts, coming and accomplishing something that is his will, such as. Uh, coming and giving a word or coming and healing a person through another person or coming and giving a counsel or giving an interpretation of a dream and then lifting. And I'm, I'm talking about in energy form or power form, okay? The difference with Jesus is that when John the Baptist baptized him, the Holy Spirit never came and went on Jesus. If you study the words out there, The Holy Spirit descended and rested on him as a permanent habitation, never to leave. It stayed in full measure on him. And we know this because in John 334, John the Baptist said Jesus speaks the father's words because the father gives him his spirit without limit. Like, for sure, the Holy Spirit was leading Jesus up to the point of his baptism. But that day, the day of his baptism, full connection of his body and his spirit were reconnected after being 30 years apart. Because remember, Jesus came to the earth laying aside all of his divine privileges to come in the likeness of men, right? And he learned obedience through the things he suffered, And he did all of this to show us the way and pay for the way for us to receive the full inheritance as well. What Paul experienced in the foretaste of the Holy Spirit was glorious, but it was still limited. Jesus experienced the full inheritance, which is what we are all offered now, that goes beyond even baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is the full inheritance. Habitation of the spirit without limit And that is if and this is a huge if We are willing to go through the deep surrender process and the purification necessary to carry such an unlimited measure of the holy spirit So the gifts of the holy spirit as the church has known them will not stop They will continue and they'll grow and they'll be birthed just like they always have but in this time of full inheritance there's more available. The Lord uses an analogy with me sometimes of a feast, and it's it's because I love this verse in Revelation 3.20 where it says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone listens and heeds my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he will eat with me. And I was thinking about that one day, and I was thinking about this foretaste That Paul experienced and the Lord just clearly spoke to me and he said It's been only hors d'oeuvres this whole time The main course hasn't even started yet And I just started laughing. I I don't know what it's going to look like But I know that this is how we will do the greater works because how else could we do them without the same unlimited measure of the Holy Spirit I'll give you a glimpse into my personal wrestling with this. Um, Some of you may not understand this statement when I say it, but I know that it says in Paul, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, right? But I just personally never did. And I earnestly desire the Lord, but specific spiritual gifts, not so much. And I'll try to explain why. I was, I had a weird experience a few months ago. I was talking with a man, and it's not anyone associated with our ministry, but I was speaking in a conversation with a man, and he was talking about how the Lord was using him so powerfully in his spiritual gifts and how he was able to encourage people, and and uh, it was really amazing because the Lord is really using him powerfully. But at, as I'm talking with him, I have, I have two different huge reactions going on in my spirit. And on one hand, I was so drawn to what he was saying, and I wanted to hear all of it. But on the other hand, I was like, I had this aversion. Like I didn't want what he want, what he had. And I really, I was troubled by it. I had to go home and I had to sit with the Lord. I, sometimes I have really strong discernment in, In the moment, though, I can't quite articulate what's going on inside me. So I needed to spend some time with the Lord so he could define for me what was going on. And I was troubled until he showed me that I was drawn to the Holy Spirit in him. But at the same time, I was adverse to it because it was still a representation of the best of the inferior. And even what was so amazing to hear this man talk about his experiences, it's so small compared to what's coming. It's like the top level of what has been so far. So I was drawn to it, but my spirit was rejecting it because the Lord didn't want me to settle for the thought of appetizers. He's opening up something in this time that goes beyond gift classifications. See, a person can be so satiated by really good hors d'oeuvres that you don't hunger for the main course. The level of the habitation of the Holy Spirit that Jesus walked in far surpassed all that. He healed all who came to him. He healed by simply being in a place and wearing a garment that had a hem that could be touched. Sometimes miracles happen and you neither touch the person nor prayed anything nor even said anything. That happened with the man with the withered hand in the synagogue when Jesus just said to the man, hold up your hand, and instantly it was healed. His very first miracle didn't involve any recorded prayer. All he did was give instructions to the attendants, fill the pots up with water. There was no begging. There was no pleading. It was just only him doing what the father was doing and saying what the father was saying where it was just finally time for the miracles to come forth because it was finally time for him to live in the outpouring of the faith that had already been built with his father. Jesus is an example of the continuous flow of the spirit with no end and no lack. He was the conduit and the solution for every problem. And he offered continuously that which seemed too good to be true. It defied belief because people then and people still now don't really know how good God really is. And that's what he meant when he said, he who believes in me, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And this is the example of Jesus. And we are his joint heirs. Prepared for a time of walking in our full inheritance. All right, the third thing tied together in Romans 8 we have creation, we have the increase of the Holy Spirit, and we have the redemption of our bodies. Okay, let's look again at verse 23, uh, Romans 8 23. Not only creation, but we ourselves, too, who enjoy the first fruits of the Holy Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies from sensuality and the grave, which will reveal our adoption, our manifestation as God's sons. OK, Paul wasn't talking here about merely the healing of the body. OK, the Lord's power flowed so powerfully through Paul that bodily healing was a normal occurrence for him to see every day. Okay? He's talking about the complete redemption of the body. About seven years ago, uh, this was during the, the worst, really, of Carson's illness, And it was a really, really rough time. Um, Carson was about, I don't know, how old were you? Anyway, he was about 15 at this point. He had been sick for about three years. And he was living, it's hard to explain, but he was living in a constantly dying state. A constant state of starvation, basically, because his body could not assimilate anything. And that's in America. You know, that's with the greatest doctors. On the case, that's with plenty of food around. And he was in excruciating pain all the time. And my own anguish was quite heavy at that time. And one day I was in the car by myself. I think I had to, I left the house so seldom in those days, but I left the house and I, I was praying. Now I believed for Carson's healing from the beginning because the Lord told me he would not always be sick, but that's a difficult promise to hold on to when your child is literally dying every day, you know. And so I'm in a car, and I'm letting myself for 30 seconds just think about what it might be like when Carson was healed. It was like I just let myself, which I, I didn't do much. I just let myself think about it. And the Lord said to me, it will be like it never even happened. And all I could think of was those Serve Pro commercials, you know, that you see on TV where people's basements get flooded. <laughs> Because that's their slogan. You, the basement gets flooded, and Cerbro comes in. It makes everything back, you know, better, back to normal. Redoes the drywall, the carpet, whatever. And their slogan is something like that. It's like like it never even happened, you know. So that's very appealing when you have something terrible happen in your house. And then a couple of years ago, the Lord began to speak to me about what is coming, and I had a dream, and it was a pretty quick dream. But He gave me a dream about Carson and Cole. And and they're twins, just for those of you who don't know. But when when Carson became sick, he was about that 12-year-old middle school age. And there were other health issues that have affected Cole as well. But in my dream, the boys were back to that 12-year-old middle school age, and I was trying to take them somewhere fun. I was trying to take them to an amusement park or something, but real fast – we discovered this wasn't gonna be possible. They were struggling, they were very frail. Both of them were very, uh, they just were weak and sick and couldn't walk. And so just out of great sadness, we decided to go home. Just pack it up and go home, it's not gonna work. And so I'm in a parking garage and I'm putting gear into the back of the car and the two boys walked out of my view for about two minutes. When they came back around, They were adults, and they were strong and tall. They were over six feet tall. They were laughing, and they were hugging each other, and they were just thriving, you know. And I woke up. And as I woke up, the Lord said to me something. He said, I'm not going to heal them simply back to where they were before they were sick. I'm going to heal them all the way back to their original DNA, what I planned for them to be from the beginning of time. Yeah. So, so I'm just crazy enough to believe the Lord when he says things to me. And we've had some fun with that. Um, we've been discussing for the last couple of years what it will be like when they're tall and brawny. And when Cole and Jenna got engaged, I remember saying to her, you know, I know you love Cole, but I hope you're not too attached to his current physique because it's going to change, you know. And Cole was laughing last week, too, just because he he was expressing a concern that when this happens, Lucas might not recognize him at first. So we've had a good time with this, but... This was the beginning of this understanding he began to unfold. And there's still gaps in my understanding. I'm not going to pretend I know everything about this. But what I do know is what he's told me. There are two types of healing coming. One is where the Lord freely gives full healing to a person for every need of their physical body. Okay? Organs, joints, muscles, every system being restored to perfect harmony. Disease process gone. And the body restored in every way. And for most of us, that's an amazing thought and an amazing promise. And as amazing as that is, it still isn't the fullness of what Jesus came to give us in our full inheritance as brothers and sisters. We have known from the teachings of Paul that when we know the Lord and we die from this life, we receive a body of perfection in heaven. Right. That's widely accepted. And we get that from second Corinthians five. We'll look at it together real quick. I'm going to read this one from the NLT and I'm going to start in verse one. So this is second Corinthians five one. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. We will not be spirits without bodies. Okay, so this isn't news. This has always been our understanding, but let's read on. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, okay, there's that same language again. There has been a down payment made. The word there actually means an earnest or money given as a pledge that the full amount will be paid. He has given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. He's literally saying again, the portion of the Holy Spirit we've been given is a down payment for what God has prepared us for. And that is the ability to live in a new body so that this dying body can be swallowed by life. And he's even saying here, I'm not saying we want to die. I'm saying we want to keep living in a body that is swallowed up by life. There's so much more I could say about 2 Corinthians 5. My personal belief after studying it all out is that Man has taken much of this chapter and taught it to mean something different than what Paul actually meant. But that's a subject for another day. But Paul knew by revelation that the time of the full inheritance on the earth was coming, even if he wouldn't see it in his own lifetime. And this is what is coming. This is what the father's plan always was. This is what he's making available to us in our adoption So full healing of the body will be available to all who have faith to believe, just like Jesus healed everyone who came to him. But beyond physical healing, what will be available is everything his blood paid for us to have the perfect mind, body and spirit connection that Adam and Eve had where he was their dwelling place. The Lord told me it will be every person's choice. And here's where I want to look at Romans 8 again one more time, at verse 17, where it says, And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. This option of becoming the habitation of God. And receiving a body of perfection on earth will be a choice that every person has. Whether they've already been on this path or they're willing to enter into the deep surrender process required to share in his suffering so that we can also share in his glory as a full heir. In the two kinds of healing, one one kind of healing will evict the enemy and bring healing to the physical body as if the affliction was never there. Okay, this is part of the first fruits Option. This is the part of the option we, we're living in now. The other kind of healing is an invitation into the preparation that Jesus endured that will take a person into full wholeness and restoration as if the curse of sin never occurred. It's allowing Jesus to extract every stronghold and hindrance as we surrender and we believe. It's the complete undoing of every enemy work inside of a person. It's giving him unlimited faith and giving him unlimited surrender and being willing to live in perpetual purity because the Lord, the Lord's blood covered us to be able to live in that purity. Okay. I'm two thirds of the way through writing a book on the pathway for a person to become ready for the habitation of God. And what, what following the example of Jesus really looks like. But he wants everyone to choose this path. He never wanted anybody to leave it in the first place. The trajectory of mankind that went so wrong in the first place began with a single choice of a person taking their eyes off of the creator and putting them on a different way. The return for each person is to take their eyes off of every different way and refocus, laser-focused, on their creator. For everything. And all of this was the father's dream all along. And this time we're in now is the beginning of the return back to the beginning. And it includes everything. Weather, plants, animals, bodies, everything being healed and restored back to the father's original plan. It's the time of the Lord's favor, and with it the day of God's vengeance upon his enemies. And everyone will see it who is willing to walk by faith and not by sight. And the reason faith is needed so much right now is because the greatest faith is always required by the ones who are called to go first. Once some of these things begin to be seen in the natural realm, it's much easier for someone to come along and see and then believe. It's much harder, though it's much more of a privilege to be asked to endure in strong faith for the pioneering of something. And I said this before, I'm going to say it again because I I really mean it. We are supposed to pick up where Jesus left off on the earth. Well, Jesus left off with his first recorded miracle. uh, First, I'm sorry, he left off with his last recorded miracle being the raising of Lazarus. He left off enjoying his disciples and teaching them and meeting with them often, many times on earth, in his glorified body. He left off having defeated soundly every enemy, including death itself. So I'm closing here, but the the time of the appetizers is ending, and the main course is beginning. The time of the first fruits is ending. And the time of the rest of the harvest is beginning. The time of the down payment is ending. And the time of the full inheritance is beginning. The time of the Spirit coming and lifting and the use of the gifts, that's not going to end. But the time of the presentation for the choice of the descending, resting Holy Spirit is beginning. And for his people, the end will always finish as he purposed it to from the beginning. And yes, we're going forward, but in a way we're going back to Eden. We are returning from exile. I'm going to close this part in prayer, but I've asked if we could finish by playing a song. And uh, the lyrics will be on the screen so you can follow along. But this song came out a couple months ago and... I'm not sure the writers meant it to be associated with this theme, but to me it is, and I just wanted you to be able to hear it, and we'll play the song, and then Jeff can come up. So let's just pray. Lord, I commit all of this to you. I'm amazed at the great blessing and privilege of being alive in this time, to watch all of this come forth as you originally planned it. And I know I speak for many here, but I I definitely speak for myself. Lord, use me to set the bar higher because the bar in Christianity has been too low for too long. And, Lord, we want everything that your blood paid for us to have. So use us to establish a new, higher bar. And we say yes, God, to whatever that looks like. In the name of Jesus, amen.